Academy Award nominee for Best Visual Effects, Godzilla Minus One is an epic, entertaining blockbuster with a tender love story at its core, says the Washington Post. Winner of eight International Best Visual Effects Awards and nominated for 12 Japan Academy Film Prizes, Godzilla Minus One is the third highest grossing foreign language film in the United States of all time. Certified fresh at 98% on Rotten Tomatoes, Forbes says Godzilla Minus One is one of 2023's greatest films. Academy Award nominee, Best Visual Effects, Godzilla Minus One from Toho International. This is Scott Mendelson, and welcome to the Outside Scoop, now in podcast form, or as this is probably going to be unofficially called, the Box Office Podcast, in case I do other ones. Right now, Ryan Scott can't make it, and we're still waiting on Jeremy Fooster, but we still have Lisa Lehman, and if it's just the two of us, so be it. We'll have a good old time. Indeed. Who are you, and what do you want? <laughs> Hello, listeners and viewers. I'm Lisa Lehman, pronouns she, her. I'm a writer and film critic for outlets like Collider, Looper, Scarletine. Price you, I got my byline on a couple different places. I love movies at box office, and I'm very happy to be here. Thank you. Always a pleasure. So let's just jump right into it. Not much box office stuff to talk about because the only big newbie was Lisa Frankenstein, which did not parlay generational nostalgia for Jennifer's body, earning $3.8 million. That's about 55% sans inflation of what Jennifer's body opened to in 2009. It's a $13 million picture. It will probably make money in the long run. Thank you, PVOD. Uh, Argyle repeated with a whopping $6.5 million at the top of the box office. The grand total was around $42 million, which was not only, I think, the worst Super Bowl, at least in modern history, but it was around $20 million lower sans inflation than the weekend right after 9-11. In September of 2001, when even movies like Hardball were opening with around $9 million, it was around $10 million less than mid-March of 2020 as the world was starting to shut down. Do you have any thoughts other than, dear God? It's so shocking to me how Hollywood quickly abandoned the Super Bowl weekend as some place to open. Because from 2008 to 2000. Super Bowl weekend was a hopping in place. The Miley Cyrus concert, Taken, Dear John, even The Roommate did okay 2011. Chronicle and the Woman in Black both opened to 20 million mm -hmm. over 2012. American Sniper in its third weekend was still making 30 mil. Like it's, that was 2015, yeah. yeah. And a good comparison is 2013 Super Bowl weekend was Warm Bodies. Mm -hmm. It was a horror rom-com about zombies. Very good one, by the way despite being an original movie or a high-concept, new-to-you original, whatever, with such giant box office stars as Teresa Palmer and Nicholas Holt, who is about to belly flop in a couple months with Jack the Giant Slayer, that film still opened to around $20 million. So the audience was there for those kind of films. I think the problem is Hollywood stopped making these kinds of movies, specifically like geared towards teenagers, which doesn't like you need a roadmap to realize that's a good demo to hit in the Super Bowl. Your average 14-year-old doesn't really care about the Kansas Chiefs. Maybe they do this year because of Swift. But like normally. Has they don't really... Swift? You <laughs> saved us in October, but you doomed us in February. 
<laughs> but on all seriousness, teens usually don't. So it's a good weekend for date movies like Dear John or Warm Bodies. But Hollywood stopped making those. And now it's too ri- risky to drop $200 million, I don't know, Hasbro movie over Super Bowl weekend. We're stuck with these lame duck weekends where it's just, where's the family movie? Where's like a Lego movie this weekend or something that would probably do fine. But yeah, it's just not. Wasn't a good weekend for anybody. Only there was a studio that had an allegedly completed Mary Melodies comedy. If only with mm. John Cena, perhaps. <laughs> hmm. I wonder. Eh, better delete that. Eh. So I'm looking at the chart right now, and wasn't a good weekend for every anyone really, except for some of the holdovers held nicely. Migration continues to do very well. Anyone but you is doing a thing. Imagine if it was good. Imagine, imagine if it wasn't shot horribly. Kudos to Out of Darkness for actually not flopping. Like one mil at the, like for a Bleecker Street movie, pretty good. Sure. Sadly, very good for a Bleecker Street movie. Yep. Bleecker Street's like, we're back on top, baby. I'm just happy they're still alive. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Honestly, if they can get to the 10 year mark, they yeah. might have a big enough library to keep going forever. Genuinely. Yeah. They might Especially be. I think they're bought by Lionsgate. I just made that up in a spot that's not inside baseball conjecture. Pure um, Flex is going to take him. Also, not a bad opening for, um, what's its name? The Taste of Things. Actually, bizarrely big. 43K per theater. Good thing. I wish we still had the old box office mojo so we could look at like the opening weekends for studios and see how this ranks against other IFC movies in limited release. But fortunately, next this coming weekend, by default, even if... Both Marley and Madam Webb are lucky to cross thirty million over the long holiday. That's still better than we've had of late. We'll take it. I have a hunch Marley is going to overperform. I hope so, and uh, for I, obvious reasons. Twenty, to, yeah, it's good to see a film from a with a black cast and creative team make that money. An adult movie, a grown up movie, etc. Madam Webb, I don't think is going to hit twenty five over the long weekend. That would not surprise me. I really do not. Mm. I think this will drop by the time the embargo is up, but I had a good time with it, but I'm not going to pretend it's going to get rave reviews. I, I don't think audiences are going to like it. It just doesn't really deliver what they want. No, it's it's very kitschy in a way that I enjoyed, but that's okay, because for better or worse, Sony is not treating these films as the be-all, end-all of their entire empire. No. that They arguably might have been from 2012 to maybe 2019-ish. We're seeing comparatively a moving away from the comic book superhero film as a be-all, end-all to a given studio's fortunes. Right. And to a, a given actor's fortunes. And I think there is a case to be made that in just a few years, we've gone to a situation where an actress like uh, Sydney Sweeney playing a superhero in a Marvel comic book movie would be an aspirational goal or sort of the pinnacle of what success looks like, to now it's, let's hope it doesn't hurt our career too badly. The 2020s already, and it's not like we have a whole decade to look back on, but already a lot of the younger actors are getting big for movies that aren't super stuff. Barry Kehogan was an Eternal, a very, Mm -hmm. like a prominent one in Eternals. That really didn't do anything for his career, good or bad. It just floated by. But everything he did in Saltburn, that turned him into somebody people actually do know now. Oh, there are people are conscious of who this guy is. So yeah, it's Sydney Sweeney, even like anyone but you has turned her into so many people recognize. Like you don't need these anymore. Not like we did with Tom Holland and stuff into the 2010s. 
Yeah, and I, I do wonder, and it's maybe more for directors than for actors, but at what point is signing on to a giant franchise like that almost a trap? almost a net negative because these things are so much more commercially dicey than they were in the 2010s is in no fault of her own but nia DaCosta signing on to the marvels in what 2019 2020 it would say hey a worst case scenario she's got a hit movie whatever who cares and right. no, she doesn't even have that no that might even be why deadpool 3 is not directed by sundance 2021 she and header it's directed by sean levy Fantastic Four is done by Matt Shakeman next year, right? They're getting more journeyman people, right, to do these. And I think there's value in that, personally. Whether you want to call them journeymen or just craftsmen or just workaday filmmakers, I do think there's value in having just good, competent, sturdy filmmakers who are directing these big blockbusters and let the artier filmmakers make artier movies. This is a, a change from what we all thought in the 20. 20- late 2000s, early 2010s, was let non-white people direct tentpoles. That was valid at the time. Now I think it's almost, oh no, Barry Jenkins directed Lion King 2. I hope it doesn't hurt him too badly. Please don't bring that up. I don't like to remember that to happen. He's a busy guy. He, he's geeking he multitask. Oh, oh. And, you know, if someone's going, if we're going to get a Lion King, here we go again, then it might as well make Barry Jenkins a lot of money. Blanking to Secret of the Ooze. Jeremy's coming. Hold on. And that's why we think Jeremy is the biggest... Fo- oh, shit. He's here. Hi. Hi, Jeremy. Hey oh, there. Man. We were basically talking about how stuff like Madame Web and the Marvels and theoretically Mufasa were in this new weird place where prestigious filmmakers signing on to do tentpoles franchise. It's almost a trap because you're not even guaranteed the commercial success that you probably would have gotten out of it in the 2010, where maybe it's better for journeymen like Sean Levy to be the ones directing Deadpool 3. This is good timing since, what do the Wachowskis today? They don't, her, she's got her new movie. Lily, I think. I think it's Lily Wachowski. She's directing a new movie that starts shooting in like a month. That's just a tiny comedy. And it's oh. like, that's great. She's just doing no. a little thing. Like, yeah. no need for a big budget thing. It's great. I did appreciate, and forgive me, I don't remember which one is which, but whichever one it was, Kudos to getting Warner Brothers to basically light $190 million on fire. Filmmaker-driven studio. <laughs> Dude, I like the Matrix Resurrections. I'm here for but commercially, I love when, the Matrix Resurrections. You too, I, will take the, I will take the Matrix Resurrections over any of the John Wick sequels. Okay? Ooh. Okay, he's getting kicked off this podcast. Fuck that shit. No, I can, I can actually see that. I don't know if I agree, but I see it. No, um, I, I like the movie quite a bit, but commercially it was like, what the hell are you thinking? No, that's a, Warner Brothers wanted The Force Awakens and Lana gave them therapy in a good way. Yeah, instead, they gave them Jurassic World, but less commercial. A classic self-loathing blockbuster. We're going to have to really start examining. It feels like the, the pipeline for, of Sean Levy going from Free Guy to Deadpool feels a hell of a lot more natural than... Koei Zhao going from Nomadland to Eternals. I actually think it can actually help because we just had Anna Bowden interview her at Sundance at The Wrap, and she was talking about how with the latest movie that she just premiered at Sundance, that working on Captain Marvel actually gave them a lot of confidence to do some of the more action stuff in this new movie that they're doing. It wasn't something that they were really familiar with before being a part of the Marvel process. So I, I was fascinated by that. But in terms of the commercial viability of all of these movies and, and 
making the jump from the Sundance to Marvel pipeline, it's getting to the point that maybe that's just not working. That it, it takes somebody like Ryan Coogler, who has a knowledge of the source material and has the, the versatility to be able to jump from Fruitvale Station to Creed to Black Panther to really pull it off. I think it, it, it's getting to the point where I, I think you you need to have I think a director needs to have that intermediate step. I, I, at the, I, it feels backhanded to call Creed an intermediate step because I think that's the best movie he's made so far. But in the sense of he works on an indie film and he works on a studio film and then he moves up to the big stuff rather than the huge jump that we saw somebody like sometimes. Yeah, rather than the big jump that someone like Zhao or, or Bowden or Fleck or, or DaCosta did. It, it, it's it seems like it's the right move. And especially the, the fact that Sean Levy has shown he worked with Ryan Reynolds. They are clearly very good at working together. So it, it, it's just natural fit. The example I was given is that I think John Turtletub the Meg is much better than Ben Wheatley's The Meg 2, where it's partially because Turtletub, while he's no auteur per se, he is a, he, he knows how to make movies at a nuts and bolts level. I'm not saying Ben Wheatley doesn't. But I feel with the Meg 2 we got, we didn't get the nuts and bolts sturdiness, but we also didn't get much of the auteuristic sensibilities that you that a guy like that would theologically bring to a giant shark movie. So right. like, we got the worst of both worlds. What and, are you going to get from like Lee Isaac Chung doing Twisters is my biggest thing. thing. Do I think it will be a good movie? I think it'll be a fine disaster movie, whatever. But commercially, it's a that franchise is a huge coin toss. And if it goes badly, because it's not a commercial guarantee, will he, excuse me, will his career be impacted in a way that, you know, a white indie darling would not, a white male indie darling would not? And I don't know the answer to that, because it's quite possible that he just, you know, fuck this, that I'm going back to 824 or whatever, or Neon or what have you. But we'll, we'll talk more about Twisters when we get to the, Jeremy, do you have any Box office thought. <laughs> it's a massive disaster. The last time there was a box office weekend this bad was the weekend before Avatar 2 came out. More than a year since it's been this bad. It's been it's the worst weekend on record for a Super Bowl weekend. And it's just a perfect storm. And now we're heading into this next weekend with, with Bob Marley and Madam Webb coming out. And those will help somewhat. But you look at President's Day weekends of the past. Like films like you know, let's forget. Let's put aside the huge opening weekends for something like a Black Panther. Even we're not even getting something like the opening weekend for Sonic the Hedgehog or for Fifty Shades of Grey. We're getting two films that are going to combine to make two thirds of that on over the course of six days, and the rest of the market is just non-existent. So it's going to be a very weak Presidents' Day weekend compared, not just to prior to the pandemic, but compared to 2022 and 2023. Yeah, I do think, and this is the last navel-gazing point I'll make, is that Lisa Frankenstein, which I liked, opened so poorly despite a critical consensus that was more willing to embrace it compared to something like Jennifer's Body, considering who were the adults in the room 15 years ago. It's time to retire the notion that Jennifer's Body flopped because it was mismarketed. I was there. <laughs> the trailer and the poster and the TV... It pretty much gave a pretty accurate representation of what the movie was about. And people made the choice to say, eh, I'm going to go see Zombieland instead. 
What I will say about Lisa, what I will say about Lisa Frankenstein, it's the early front runner for best poster of the year. I don't know if you saw that mm-hmm. '80s throwback poster. And I did. Oh yeah. I'm a sucker for any movie that can defy the agency requirements, where you just have to have a bunch of floating heads to get everybody on the poster, and it just ends up being dry and dull. The film is absolutely going to be a future cult favorite, such generational staple of girls' sleepovers. And it only costs 13, so I'm guessing it'll make its money in the long run in PVOD. But yeah, that it, doesn't it, help the multiplex. Which yeah, pretty much. It's, it's fine for the studio, not fine for the exhibitors. That being said, we can joke about how Taylor Swift having a co-starring role at the Super Bowl may not have helped. Quick, what were your favorite respective Super Bowl? And when I'm counting trailers, the, you go online, you watch the whole trailer. I don't care about the, oh no, they made us go on YouTube to watch the trailer. You know, the Planet of the Apes, not even close. It, it just, by, by a country mile, it is by far the most intriguing of the bunch. I did wonder... After what they did, I've really been impressed with how, even within the Revival trilogy, they really took very different, it took big risks with each new installment. Each one feels noticeably different than the others. Like, sometimes to a detriment. I I think there were some people, when they heard War for the Planet of the Apes, they were expecting a war, which isn't really what the movie was. I really love the movie for what it was, but given the way the previous movie ended, I think there was some disappointment on that front, but I really respected what Matt Reeves and Mark Bomback did with that story and the the ambiguity of certain things in the story, like the whole virus in that story. And now I'm very curious to see how they keep this going. I'm really interested in the idea of... with. This Planet of the Apes series, and we're also seeing it with stuff like Avatar, we're seeing a storytelling approach in terms of these multi-franchise installments that feels similar to Roots. You know how with Roots, we began with Ovar Burton, and then it just keeps on going with future generations, and old protagonists fade into the background and new protagonists come in. And with Avatar, we've been told that after this next installment, it transitions away from Jake and Natiri and goes on to their kids. And now it's the same thing with Planet of the Apes, where so much time has passed that people have forgotten what the, what really happened with Caesar. And the holes in that become part of this compelling new plot. And I, and that's, that, something that really fascinates me because it, it gives a chance to this movie to really turn away from some of the more nihilistic aspects of the original Planet of the Apes series. And it was had to be the commercial for Evil Does Not Exist, the new movie from the Drive My Car director. Janus Films brought their A-game to this. No, of course, that didn't happen. I wish that would have been I so exciting. Approved during that? <laughs> uh, dude, that would have been so stoked if, like this quiet Japanese film had just like, dropped a commercial. I would have just screamed. Uh, Mine is also Apes. Jeremy, you said everything so eloquently about why this looks so exciting. So I'll also give a shout out that it was surreal to finally see Wicked as a musical theater geek myself. Love me some musicals. I was like, oh my God, we're actually doing it. I've been, I remember the 2016 release date, the 2019 release. I, it's been coming and it was like, oh my God, it's here. It's going to finally happen. It's not as good as the ape. I think we might have. Just because I hate that the lion in Wizard of Oz, 
Oh, no, I was just going to say, I do hate that the lion in the Wizard of Oz is now just a giant CG lion. Screw that. It should be a guy in a costume. But otherwise, that also looks cute, though not as good as apes. Yeah, we all agree that apes was by far the best of the night. I do think the Planet of the Apes trailer stood out because it wasn't just arguing this is a franchise that you like. It's arguing this is going to be a really fucking good movie on its own terms. Mm, beautiful looking, too. Is, yes, it looks gorgeous. And I do think that's a value when the very idea of a big budget franchise is no longer a big deal unto itself. That if you're one, the one that's arguing IP or not, this is a great movie, that I think that gives you an advantage. I remember in 2010, which was a miserable summer, you'll see the first half. I think one big reason the Karate Kid remake did as well as it did is that was a, you know, from the marketing point of view, it was set, first of all, it was selling as a, whether you know about the IP or not, who cares? This is a really compelling coming of age drama starring Jaden Smith and Jackie Chan. This is a good movie. This is a thoughtful family melodrama that happens to be a remake of a movie your parents like. And I, the wicked thing, they're not calling it wicked part one anymore, which means, are they going to spend the entire marketing campaign both hiding that it's a musical and hiding that it's a part one? They learned from Dead Reckoning. They learned the wrong lesson from Doom. So now they have to double back and learn the right lesson from Dead Reckoning. But Ethan, what if what if changing the part one is just what the wizard wants? We're, we're going to have to find a way to, to cram an entity joke into every episode, aren't we? <laughs> <laughs> but you bring up a, a good point about hiding that it's a musical. And I, part of me is thinking, okay, this is just the first piece. Maybe you don't want to show the big singing when, when you know, it, it, maybe if they had gotten the pre-kickoff spot that Deadpool and Wolverine got, maybe you show more of that singing. But like, in the, when you're in a commercial break in between game, it, it, during the game, maybe you don't want to have the full singing. So you don't, you, know, you want the maximum effect of people hearing Cynthia and Cynthia Revo and Ariana Grande in a theater. Maybe that's the case. And if that's the case, then fair enough, fair dues. But, I did also think, okay, I get it. I get hiding that it's a musical when it's something like Wonka or even Mean Girls, because you've got other things that you can market. You can market Timothy Chalamet being adorable and gorgeous. You, you can you can market Hugh Grant being an Oompa Loompa. You can highlight Timoth Tina Fey's humor for Mean Girls. But Wicked is Wicked. It is. We can pretty. I think we can strongly say with. Maybe you can make a case for Rent, but I would say before Hamilton came along, Wicked was the most successful musical of the 21st century. It has a following, and it's Wizard of Oz. And you've got Ariana Grande. Don't you want to actually show them singing? It, that's why like, the only reason why I can think of them not really doing that, except from except for hearing Arivo belting out a few long notes, is... Just that they just felt, okay, we just want to have it so that the first time they hear people hear the singing from this movie is in a theater. My jokes aside, I would be shocked if they did the hide the music route with this one. I do think the first full-on trailer, whether it drops with Fall Guy or Twisters or what or Despicable Before, will probably have the two of them because they both have you're right. That is part of the sell. You know this show, you know these characters, you know these songs, at least one of them, and you want to hear these actresses who, if nothing else, have killer pipes. So I would be shocked 
if they did go that route. But I would also laugh if, again, they spent the entire marketing campaign not only hiding it's a musical, but hiding it's a part one as well. But whatever. It's, it's an announcement teaser. It's, it's like, it's telling people that already know enough to care that, hey, you're getting a Wicked movie. Yeah, I was asked by my colleagues at The Wrap when Milan 2 got announced, is Wicked going to move? And they were all like, but it's Moana, but it's Disney. And I'm like, okay, two things. One, even with Moana, nobody's afraid of Disney anymore. And two, if Universal felt the need to move Wicked, then that is a very damning statement about what the theatrical market is. They feel like it's not strong enough to hold both Moana and Wicked. Barbenheimer was great because it was at the return of counter-programming. But we got to start getting them a little bit closer rather than just two movies that are so diametrically apart they become a meme. Mm -hmm. Yes, Moana and Wicked are both musicals, but one is PG, the other one's PG-13. And it's Thanksgiving weekend. Sometimes, Scott, I'm sure you can attest to this. On Thanksgiving weekend, it's not out of the realm for people to see more than one movie on that extended weekend. Yeah. They can coexist and they need to coexist. If, if the if thing, if Thanksgiving corridor is only good enough to support one big movie, then the box office is never going to get back to where it needs to be. This is so I'm glad that they are staying put. That this is a clear sign that no, we are staying put in November because we just spent a big Super Bowl ad for a movie coming out in November. The only, and I agree with you, the only caveat, if there was something coming out around the same time, like November or early December, where they just swap, okay, we're not going to open two music, kid-friendly musicals on the same day, but we're not going to give them that much space. It's when, when Mufasa moved to Christmas, it's like, is Sonic 3 going to move? And best of my knowledge, no, because as you said, they're not scared of Disney anymore. If they were to say, eh, we'll switch it with Gladiator 2, that's fine. I, I, to me, that wouldn't be a particular sign of weakness for either of them. I now you guys have emphasized, by the way, that Moana 2 and Wicked, we've mentioned this. It's made me realize that I'm not joking about this. If any indie studio has an R-rated comedy on the shelf, drop it that weekend. Be the raunchy counter-programming to the family-friendly musicals. I'm not... This would be a great time for... Warner Brothers should drop Joker 2 on that weekend, too. Chaos. Imagine if Dick's the musical came out on Thanksgiving No. Weekend. Oh, my God. If Lady Gaga and Joker dropped that weekend, the gays and the theater kids would just die. Oh, my God. They get Wicked and Joker 2. Oh, my God. It, it, it would be... Theater Camp Barbenheimer. Oh, yeah. Wicked It was announced in June of 2016. And when it was announced, my big hot take or whatever was that, oh... This is the chance for Universal to show that Disney doesn't have a monopoly on fairy tale fantasy temples. Eight years later, it's basically a chance for them to strike a killing blow. The idea that not only do they not have a monopoly, they're not the big kahuna anymore. We'll Universal t- took the animated movies away, and now they'll take the live action fairy tales away. But did they take the animated movies away? Like, I this is the other thing I'm writing up for the rap is how you know we've talked about this offline a lot, Scott. That Universal has put out a bunch of franchise movies, Mario, Despicable Me, or Minions. And while Universal has been trying to go for original movies at a time where no original movies are working, and the original movies, the original animated movies that Universal has put out, Migration and Ruby Gilman, have been duds. So now here's me after 40 on a 70 budget. I would qualify that as a hit. 
Yeah, migration stood. Gilvin did. You're absolutely. Right. I forgot Ruby Gilvin existed. It, migration yeah. did okay. It, it wasn't a bust by virtue of the budget, but when you compare it to how Sing did in 2016, like maybe it didn't need to get close to Sing numbers, but it needed to get it needed to get somewhere in that area. Do you think to, that's even possible anymore, except in rare circumstances? Because my big that, that, that's the big question. Can any original animated film get a hook anymore? It took Elemental. It took overwhelming post release word of mouth for Elemental to make what it did. And Universal went all in with migration on the marketing. And it only did, like I said, it did okay yeah. for the budget level. Bad guys numbers. And now Disney, after four years of doing original movies at Disney Animation and Pixar, some of which got punted to streaming, it's now swinging back in the opposite direction to keep their hottest late 2010s their hottest 2010s animated hits fresh in the theme parks, in the product, in their products, and all of that. No, they're investing heavily in Milana and Zootopia in the theme parks. And here they are putting it in these fresh slots. And I don't see, unless things get end up really bad with both of those movies. And with Milana, there are some iffy signs. With Manuel is not coming back. Dwayne Johnson is in talks, which... How do you make this movie with him in talks? It, it has to work, but assuming it does, then that gets a lot of families back on the horse for Disney and probably understand whatever original stuff they put out next and interested in seeing it in a theater. I, I, I get why they delayed Ilio. You know, allegedly it wasn't finished. But to me, that seemed like such a missed opportunity to capitalize on the goodwill of Elemental. It's like, hey, you remember how much you enjoyed seeing these in theaters? We've got a new original with a really easy to explain premise. The kid gets abducted by aliens and they basically make him play out the pilot episode of Star Trek Next Generation. <laughs> Something that, that fascinates me about Disney animation and Pixar is whether Disney animation and Pixar end up affecting each other's momentum. It it does make you wonder if you know when. Elemental built up a lot of goodwill, and then Wish really didn't do anything. It was it, it, people just weren't interested in that movie. It got very missed scores, and it does make you wonder if those affect each other. Had they kept Elio for March twenty twenty four, would people who probably saw the trail for that ahead of Wish or something like that do they? Get not as interested as they would have if they put that movie right after Elemental. I, I, I wonder how much one studio affects the other. I think the most general audiences, even if they know that Walt Disney Animation and Pixar are different, they're still under the Disney umbrella. That's why I cackled like an idiot when Apple said, we've got John Lasseter, we're going to be the next Pixar. No, you're not, because you're not Disney. That's why... Pixar became Pixar because for most people it was like, oh, it's the computer animated Disney movie. Neat. But Scott, look. <laughs> look. <laughs> look is so bad. I think it was secretly made by Disney as intentional sabotage. Oh. It was as much it, it was an equal mix of the driver and the car to use motorsports parlance. Apple, you do you, you do not build the same car as Pixar. Yeah. Even if it's yeah. the guy who made cars. What do you all think I of the Twisters trailer? I am a huge disaster movie nut. 90 disaster movies were my catnip when I was 14. I pop in the VHS tape of Armageddon and Volcano, Mars Attacks. I just loved watching them. I just thought they were so fun. And 
So this kind of looks like it might scratch that itch, but it doesn't look like it's doing anything especially new. I'm glad they're avoiding some of the legacy sequel tropes. There's no Helen Hunt being called out of retirement and it's like evil dies tonight. Tornadoes die tonight. I don't know. Like it just doesn't, it, some of it just looks a little bit like it's Twister, but now the little balls and Dorothy are drones. Okay. Glumpal's got a cowboy hat. That's fine. I just don't really see. There's nothing to offend. There's just nothing that really makes me go, oh my God, Twister's back. It feels like this was a movie that was pitched as a separate thing. And the stu- and Universal looked at it and just thought, doesn't this feel too much like Twister? Won't people just say this is a Twister ripoff? So let's just call it Twisters. Let's call it a Twister sequel. <laughs> we'll, 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 we'll back, we'll, we'll backdoor make it into that just because it looks so much like this. It it's, it looks like a perfectly fine B disaster movie. You know, Glenn Powell, I'm glad that Glenn Powell is continuing to build up his threads as a handsome mid-30s leading man first he had anyone but you and now he's got this he's so if that's a seven stuff for him more power to you but it also does beg the question what does lee isaac chung bring to this there's this backstory for the other character about how she was a storm chaser and one day the storm chasing went south and she, she lost all of her college friends and now it's like her forcing herself out of retirement from all that trauma is that why you got the director of Meary? It is just like, it is a very perplexing hire. And it does just make you wonder why him and what are we getting out of this? It, it really does just feel like a three out of five movie. And who knows? Maybe it becomes a thing where just the, the sheer spectacle of it becomes so much that maybe it does better than we expect. But it just on on its face, I don't know what it brings for people beyond whoa big tornadoes on imax this feels like a scraping at the bottom of the barrel in terms of ip for the sake of ip and wister which i enjoyed 28 years ago was a singular hit for singular reasons it had groundbreaking disaster related special effects it was written by Michael Crichton. It had a fun cast with Bill Paxton and Alan Hunt. It had a great trailer with the whole flying cow thing and all that stuff. It was back when movies like that, of that scale, of that size, were automatic events unto themselves. Making a generic tornado movie with the word twister in it, I, I don't know if general audiences are going to give a damn. Side note, by the way, my biggest takeaway from the Twisters trailer uh, the Warner Brothers logo looks terrible. I don't, they changed it for the third time in four years. I'm just, it's like, it looks so bad. Why? Just stop, please. They had a perfectly good one before they decided to change it once. It's like, 19. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, you had a perfectly good one. It, and it, it lasted so long for a reason. While I don't necessarily think it's going to be a giant success. It is possible that the film will stand out in a relatively light summer slate as a big, spectacular disaster movie featuring actors as ordinary people in extraordinary circumstances, underdogs, which I think is going to be the next wave of blockbusters, as evidenced by something like Wonka. And I do think that's one reason the Jurassic films are as popular as they are among the whole dinosaur eating people thing. For a decade, it was the only franchise of that scale where they weren't a superhero, a a magical person, or a metaphorical one-man army. 
they were just regular people that were running away from dinosaurs. And this is going to be regular people running away from tornadoes. If it overperforms, sight unseen, that might be one. I could see it being a movie that does eh in opening weekend, but if it gets a really good cinema score, it legs out. Yeah. Weekend two for this one is Deadpool and Wolverine. Perfect timing. Then went on. Weekend two? Yeah. Well, okay, then it's screwed. Yeah. Maybe. And again, I, I, you're probably right. But it is possible that Deadpool, Wolverine, dear God, they put no effort into that title. The Deadpool movies have the worst sequel titles. Yeah. They didn't... But did they need to put any thought into it? They just... They could. With the way everybody was just... has just been drooling for this film the moment they announced, hey, you want to play Wolverine again? It's like, why well, think of anything though, else? I don't know to what extent this film will play beyond opening weekend, beyond the hardcore converted. I'm sure it'll be a very big hit. But I do see a situation where it opens huge, playing to the fan base, including that segment of the fan base that thinks it's going to be this giant status quo-shattering event as we saw with Civil War and Doctor Strange. And then once they're gone, it's just the people left that want a Deadpool 3, which means if you don't want a Deadpool 3, Twister's the second choice. There is the feeling of superhero movies being a can't-miss FOMO film, regardless of how invested you really are in the MCU, that it's a thing on the fact that is declining that will allow for other films to be able to creep in. There's a situation where even the big Marvel films tend to be for fans-only events. Now, that's not a bad thing. I would say the same thing about the Hunger Games sequels and the Twilight sequels and the later Harry Potter films. And those films all ended up over under 300 domestic. Oh, no. But because they were such fan-only events, the example I was given in late 2012, where you had Breaking Dawn 2 do 800 million worldwide, probably because it's got the best mass battle scene of all time, because it was such a for-fans-only event, for the rest of the movie-going populace, Skyfall was the big event. Lincoln was the big event. Hobbit, an unexpected journey, had room to breathe. I sometimes forget that Lincoln made 180 domestic. And even then, Spielberg said it almost went to HBO. Yeah, the, the decline of MCU is a good thing, assuming that something else comes in to fill in yes. the gaps. But... We've seen in the past that doesn't happen. We saw that when Black Panther 2 came out in November 2022, there was nothing else out there. And it just had to dead up the box office until Avatar 2. It was the same way when Quantumania came out. Big opening weekend for Quantumania, and then the bottom fell out, and then there was nothing else for a couple of weeks until we got that really big March slate. People celebrating the downfall of Marvel is okay, but something else has to come in its place. And we haven't had anything consistent yet. When you look at pre-COVID box office overall, at least domestic, and COVID-era box office, the large majority of the difference was the Marvel DC movies making less, the Disney cartoons making less, and no Oscar season. If you make up ground in those three areas, you're going to end up with something pretty close to what we were used to. Maybe not in 2019 levels, but when you, you've said this many times, it's... You know, we're gunning for 2017, not 2019. It's the paradox of Disney. And I wrote that, I've written this mm -hmm. so many times, is that we can slag off on Disney about how they're not the titans that they were five, six, seven years ago. But they still, along with Universal, are the only two studios making well over billing at the domestic box office. They're still holding up the theatrical market for the most part in a way that not even Warner Brothers with just one film and Barbie could really do. And we're still waiting for other 
studios to provide the stuff that makes up for when Disney falls short. And until that happens, when Disney fails, movie theaters fail. Yeah, And I think people need to realize that when they kick Disney while it's down. It's, it's not, don't feel sorry for Disney, feel sorry for the theaters. What I'm curious about with the summer, if I may say, and I'm a little surprised nobody's brought the, not like I'm accusing YouTube of anything, obviously, but just like Hollywood and stuff, not bringing this up. Has anyone else realized that Netflix only bought one narrative film at the Sundance Film Festival this year? All the other one, the, that horror movie that got mixed reviews. The rest of them, all theatrical films. So many classics picked up a bunch of stuff. Searchlight got some. Neon got Soderbergh's thing. And Sundance movies, in my experience, unless it's Manchester by the Sea or some like Best Picture Contender, are summer movies. The Aubrey Plaza, My Old Ass thing got picked up by Amazon. They're giving that a normal theatrical release. I am very curious if the lack of a big Marvel film hogging all the screens at the start of the summer, especially... Because basically until late July, there is no MCU movie dominating all the screens. I don't even think like a big hit movie like A Quiet Place Day One, Ballerina, the John Wick movie will probably make some money. But I don't think even those will have anywhere near like an MCU monopoly on screens. Those studios just don't enact the same rules. I wonder if that'll leave some space for some of those Sundance movies to make some coin. Especially since some of them do have very mainstream appealing premises. They, they aren't selling them like Aubrey Plaza tells her younger self how to like grow up stuff like comedies and stuff i just as a thought but i was thinking about the summer box office of like what could fill the void i don't think that's gonna suddenly all those will suddenly make mcu money but there could be some room to get people back especially since as i posted on social media the other day the art house scene did rebound quite a bit last year we did have a gigantic improvement almost back to normal pre 19 levels in terms of how many limited releases made 10 million plus in the US. I'm curious about that this summer. I'm very curious about what this year's Sundance crop is going to be because for the first time in a while, most of them went to theatrical distributors. I think this would be a very good year to give audiences a chance to put their money where their mouth is. And what happened at Sundance is it, it, it is a side effect of a pivot at Netflix that let the Scott Supers exit. They are heavily dialing back on on their big movie plans. They're not going to be spending big on big movies with the exception of one or two movies from a big filmmaker in the hopes of getting that Best Picture Oscar that they'll never get. <laughs> but yeah, that, that has left the, 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 that's left the door open for other studios with theatrical ideas to pick it up. I think part of it's because Netflix spent really big last year on Fair Play, that, that erotic thriller with all... They, they spent, I think it was like, what, $20, $25 million on it and it did miserably on streaming. They just realized that trying to find the next code of just wasn't worth it for them anymore. So their Netflix is there to pick up documentaries and that's it. And that opens things back up for the focuses, the Sony Pictures Classics, and hopefully the Amazons when they're not roadhousing movies straight to... But I think as you mentioned last week, Roadhouse is a recognizable name and maybe they just want the recognizable stuff on the streaming service exclusively to get more eyes on that. They say the theatrical for the stuff that needs more elevation. They feel like theatrical could do that. This is a big test of can the studios market these movies properly, get them an audience without the big early May MCU movie crowding things out, will audiences respond? The most promising thing for me in terms of the art house stuff is that for the first time since the pandemic started, I feel like we're seeing actually weekly art house stuff again. I remember at this time last year, nothing. 
It's just one music doc from Utopia's dropping and it's okay. But like Neon last week announced a whole slate of stuff that they're opening in the first five months of the year. Like they're doing stuff like each month. And in May, they have something every other week, like Cuckoo, Babes, Robot Dreams. Like when you keep a steady stream of stuff in art house theaters, I really do think, maybe I'm naive, but I think that is a big, big part of it. You've got to get people conditioned to there will be something next week for you. Not every week we're going to have a masterpiece, but we'll have something new in the screens. We And if we have Sony Classics, Focus, and Neon, A24, they're all doing like monthly stuff now. That's a really good sign of just getting people back into the habit of seeing these things again regularly. Bizarrely, more so than in mainstream theaters. It's actually very odd that we have like weekly new art house stuff dropping, but not in mainstream theaters. Like we'll have vacant weeks like this past one. As a, that, and this is pure conjecture, but this is pre-COVID time where it seemed like there was a healthy art house audience among older moviegoers who either didn't know how to or didn't want to go through the rim and roll of streaming in VOD. I could like that. Where like Helen Mirren's a bot, you know, a star to that demographic. <laughs> I think you're right on that, especially since like now a lot of the art house hits are aimed younger. Yeah. The holdovers can still make money aimed at an older crowd, but like Asteroid City, Everything Everywhere, Poor yeah. Things, American Fiction are aimed at a younger crowd for sure, like college-aged yeah. people. I completely lost my... Oh, yeah. The, 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 I mean, my big conspiracy theory is that Netflix bought the horror film just because the horror film was last year was the only one that made any money. I think I, you're I, right. Yeah, let's take this one off the table just in case. And this one got way more mixed reviews than Talk to Me. Fair. Talk to Me, what I remember, like I had some friends at Sundance last year who like texted me right after they saw that. Oh, this is a big one. Let's see. Before we wrap up, does anyone have any thoughts on the Acme thing, Jurassic 4, anything that I missed? The Acme thing is all we've been talking about since my boy Trutera broke into the rap. But <laughs> it's my big thing about this is that I have two minds about the impact of this because... Just today, Margot Robbie's production company, Lucky Chap, signed a first look deal with Warner Brothers. Now, that was probably weeks in the making. The ink on that was probably signed well before this new update on Peyote broke. But I'm cynical. I don't think this is going to ruin Warner's ability to build relationships with filmmakers. And a cynical part of me is just thinking that outside of animation, where it will have a serious impact, I just don't think it's going to have that much of an impact on them. Because be real here, there are five, sometimes six doors to making big movies. And the big filmmakers, if they've got something they really want to make, aren't going to preemptively close one of those doors. Like when you've got whatever movie Ryan Coogler is going to make for Warner Brothers, if it's an original movie, that's not going to be the same process as making a Looney Tunes film. Warner Brothers isn't going to look at that with the thinking of, oh, we got to preserve our franchise and have all these misguided feelings of, oh, but what if it's another Space Jam? And then they get pulled feet and shut the whole thing down because they didn't greenlight it themselves. If they were to do something like they announce, oh, we're not going to release Mickey 17. Bong's not doing a good job with that movie. That I could see being on the level of Christopher Nolan leaving the studio. I feel like the damage of Kyogre Sackley isn't going to be so much these big names like a lot of people think it is. It's going to be more in the realm of animation. 
because there are going to be animation directors, you know, got veterans who have worked at different studios, Disney, DreamWorks, Blue Sky, Illumination, all of those, who will probably be reluctant to sign on to do an animated movie, particularly one that's going to have franchise potential, knowing what happened with this. Because they've stiffed some big veterans in, in that area, like Christopheria, the producer of the film. In that area, I can see it really hurting them. And Warner Brothers Animation is already non-existent. On, on, the, on the Lego on, movie, and they've done nothing. Exactly. They're, they're non-existent right now. Like it, it compared to Disney, DreamWorks, Illumination, Sony Animation, even Paramount now. Paramount is going to be on the rise. I, I wouldn't be surprised if Transformers 1 blows away people. And that leaves Warner Bros. as the odd man out. And will probably this will probably put Warner Bros. Animation deeper into that hole. And it will probably put more onus on them having to find films like Wonka in order to bring out the family audience. I also think, and I'm if I'm wrong, so be it. I don't think Warner Brothers can do this with a film that the current regime greenlit. Once we get past all the films that were greenlit by Jason Killer under the let's put everything on HBO Max, then this process will stop. It's also no worth noting that th there, there are some films that were greenlit by the Kyler regime that they did champion, like Evil Dead Rise last year. Four movies so, in the theaters last year that were supposed to be HBO Max. And I don't so want to it, assume that Batgirl was that bad or that Acme Coyote was that bad, but they're clearly making quality judgments. I know it sounds like I'm defending David Zaslav, but let me be clear. What they are doing is an absolutely scumbag move. It, it, it is reprehensible what, what the way they're burning everybody connected to this movie. But I'm just more thinking that I think the damage that it does is going to be more localized and less widespread than I think people were thinking. I agree. Oh, at least any thoughts? Yeah, I think David Zaslov's genius. I think Zaslov is a beautiful man and he's wonderful. On an unrelated note, Zaslov has my two pugs and I need to get the ransom money together real quick. He wants me to burn my Looney Tunes Blu-rays and I'll do it, Zaslov. Just let them go. No, it may be mad. I'm not surprised that this is developing. I'm just sad for Dave Green and everyone who worked hard on it. Whether a movie's good or bad is immaterial in terms of if you work hard on a film, it deserves to be seen. If you put in the effort, labor is labor, your work deserves to be seen. And I just wish they would at least give consumers an option for watching it. If you don't want to spend all that money on a marketing campaign, just put it on max. Without agreeing morally, I do think the shock of the system is this is the first time we've seen, at least in modern times, where movies are basically being treated like television pilots, where if mm. it doesn't work and we don't think this is good and maybe you want to try again, throw it in the vault and forget about it. It's right. especially baffling because of what, what Drew found out was that Zaslav never saw the film. Pam, Pam Abadie and Michael DeLuca saw a director's cut and Bill Damaschke, the head of Warner Bros. Animation, saw one of the audience screenings. By all accounts, the audience screenings, the scores were really good. Like people who saw that really liked it. It wasn't like Batgirl where the test scores weren't all that good. The situation is that Looney Tunes is not a theatrically viable brand, and it really never has been, at least in modern times. I went to the back in action on opening weekend, and it was a, almost a private showing. And that was back when people actually went to the movies. Kids today don't necessarily know or care about Bugs Bunny, Davy Duck, Wally Coyote, et cetera, et cetera. And unfortunately, that film and Batgirl and Stu Ball and they Haunt got caught in the purgatory of we're going to overspend on these movies because we want HBO Max to be an E-level streaming destination. But once Zadlov comes in and says, 
this is stupid. This, this is not giving us any value. This is not also worth putting in theaters. Then well, what the hell do you do with it? Hey, there's this weird fluky exception where you could actually get most of your money back. You just have to bury the damn thing. Because it's a prior regime, I can't imagine this is ever going to happen at least until a new regime takes over Warner Brothers. In a year. I also just want to clarify one thing, just because I keep seeing it in other major outlets. Coyote versus Acme was supposed to go to theaters. They set yeah. a July they set a July 21st, 2023 date. It had Barbie's date originally. I completely forgot. It's been delayed and whatever. The, the whole situation extra bizarre. Yeah. Since it's not like it's not cinematography-wise or something. It's not like it's TV movie level. Now this was supposed to be, so what happened here? I don't know. I will say the same shallow grave as Salem's Lot. One last thing I will say is that I think the other area where this is going to factor in is Animation Guild's got a contract they've got to negotiate. In the summer, this is going to even further ratchet up the resentment. Among animators, I get the sense of frustration and resentment that we saw from the writers before May 2023. And for months before the lead up to May 2023, there was this, there was a story of Cross the Spider-Verse workers being mm -hmm. burnt out by Phil Lord not being able to know what he wants in this movie, and then this constant reshoots, like the animation version of reshoots, which is much more laborious. And then this other things, like you know, a number of years ago, I had heard the situation has since improved, but there was a situation with Flick's animated showrunners being in the dark about why their shows were getting canned, not being able to see the data on their own series. It's just this constant general feeling of animators being taken for granted, being short-shifted, and now on top of this, have to worry about whether or not their hard work even gets to see the light of day. I think there's, it, it's just building up more and more of a we're not going to take it mentality, which is going to just further ratchet up the feeling of we're willing to strike if we don't get a good deal on this, it's really going to intensify organizing and union cohesion going into these talks whenever they end this year. I'll let that be the final word, unless Lisa has something specific she wants to bring up. I don't think I have anything. Thank you, as always. Next week, we'll be back to discuss the good or bad news related to Madam Webb and Marley. We can chat about Dune box office prognosis because there won't be anything else of that nature. Before we sign out, uh, who are you and what do you want? Hi, Lisa Lehman. Please keep an eye out this week on uh, Collider for some new stuff I've got coming up. I've got a Madam Web review over there. And I've also got a piece about Hugh Jackman's Oscar opening musical number being the best Oscar opening of the 21st century. So keep an eye out for that and other good stuff. By default. <laughs> By default, no, but still fun. Jeremy Fooster, you can follow me at Jeremy Fooster on Twitter, X, whatever. I am writing a rap pro this week about the future for Disney sequels, how Moana and Zootopia factor into the big picture. Also, me writing up my own preview for Bob Marley and for Madam Web. And if you have not read the full story that Drew Taylor wrote for us about Kay versus Acme, give it a good read. It is very enraging and it's very sobering about where animation is heading. Thank you.